Welcome to an inspiring message from Awaken City Church. For more information about us, visit awakencity.com.au. Now we're in a season where we're looking at this sort of what it means to be a canvas that God designs His masterpiece on, that we are called to be created anew and allow God to cultivate in us the type of life that makes the ultimate difference. Uh, A life that isn't simply one that shows up, but one that shows up and is present and engaged with the things of God. We've been looking at a core Scripture out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Many translations translate this thought that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works. But that word has been difficult to be translated by the different authors, uh, the different translations of the Scriptures. The scriptures in the New Testament were originally written, not in English, written in a different language, in Greek. And sometimes it's hard to translate words and get ideas across. And so if you ever do a study on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you'll find multiple different ways this idea, workmanship, we are God's workmanship, has been translated. Some Translations say we are God's masterpiece, which is this wonderful idea that you are what God is designing, that God sees you as His ultimate masterpiece, that He is working in and through you to recreate you anew into who you were born to be, that you are a work of art in the heart of God. But even that translation fails to capture the power of that word. I want to read to you out of a translation of the Scriptures out of a paraphrase called the voice paraphrase that I think captures this word perfectly. It says again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are the product of His hand, heaven's poetry etched on lives, created in the anointed Jesus to accomplish the good works God arranged long ago. It's interesting how you can move from a word, we are God's workmanship, to God's masterpiece, to God's poetry. And if I'm honest, that translation is actually closer to what the original language is trying to engage. But the way that God views us is that we are living, breathing story that He is working in and out. And like any story, words matter. So the greatest movies that we get to see on our screens aren't simply great because of their special effects. Because if that was the case, movies made 30 years ago just would not hold up. They're not only great because of the actors who portray the characters, although that's important. The most important thing to movies that are timeless is the screenplay. It's the story that was written by a writer that others have the opportunity to take from a blank page and then act out or live out. You are God's story. You are His master work. You are what He is trying to shape and tell the world about His goodness. And so living life as a canvas means that you and I live life with the potential to say to God, Lord, continue to write in me the story that you wanna tell. And I'm convinced that as we allow God to write the story of our lives, we are called as a people to win with our words. Because stories are built on words. They're built on what we convey to each other. They're built on what we carry. They're built on what we share. We have a part to play in the story that God is writing with our lives. And often that part ideally is made up with the way that we communicate and connect together. 
the way that we either build up or tear down. And we do that through our words. We have the opportunity to win with our words or lose with them. There's a powerful portion of Scripture, um, the entire book of James, that just jumps out to me in moments like this. James is a book in the New Testament. It's written after Jesus has ascended to heaven. It's written by, many scholars believe, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I know that might be a shocking thing, but John chapter 7 talks about this idea that Jesus had brothers. He was the one of many. He was the only child immaculately conceived and his father is Father God directly. But Joseph and Mary, his parents, went on to have an extended family, which is normal of the time. See, parents were obliged to have big families so that the kids could do all the work. (laughs) It's true. So Jesus had a large family. But it talks about this idea that the brothers didn't believe that Jesus was who He said He was. Could you imagine that? Growing up in a family where you're told a story that Joseph, your dad, is not the father of your eldest brother and that he is supposedly the son of God directly. But this is a guy that you've seen hungry. This is a guy that you've seen potentially relieve themselves. This is a guy that you've seen build things with their hands. Oh, come on, it's real life. This is somebody that you've sat down and eaten with. This is somebody who you know their preferences and what they like and dislike. This is somebody that you know. And then to grow up in this family environment where this person is God in flesh, they didn't believe it. They didn't even believe it when He began His earthly ministry, when He started healing the sick and casting out demons, when He started doing the things that He came to do, that they struggled to even engage then, but there was one thing that flipped it for them. When He was captured, when He was unfairly trialled, when He was punished for committing no crime, when He had to carry His cross, the instrument of death outside the city Jerusalem, when He was nailed to that cross and He died, and He was buried and He rose to life again. That they could not deny. And it says from there, the brothers began to believe. I mean, how gracious is Jesus? You didn't believe me to begin with, but now you have an opportunity? That He barred nobody from following Him. That He kept no record of wrong. That He didn't have a you can't join me thought because it took them a moment to see the reality that Jesus is God. But once they were in, they were all in. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the founding leader of the very first local church in Jerusalem. And he becomes somebody who gives his entire life to seeing the message of Jesus shared and advanced. And so he writes a letter here in our New Testament portion, a book that's about basically a survival guide for Christians who are under pressure. So the context is that As James is leading the very first local church, persecution has broken out in Jerusalem. One of their members has been murdered. And now all of a sudden, people who are members of this local church start being led by God to go out and spread the message, but they have to leave the city. And James chooses to stay. He stays so that others can be sent. And he writes this letter to those who are being sent. 
He writes a letter that's basically a survival guide. Picture James like the Bear grills of the Scriptures. Basically, you're being dropped off into a culture that you do not understand, into a world that you don't quite get. You've been ostracised from your home. You're missing your family, your friends and your livelihood. And you're being pushed out there into something that is uncomfortable and uncharted. You have now become the church in the wild. And to this group of people, James writes a letter that is all about what it means to survive and thrive in life. And he covers things like overcoming temptation of resisting the devil. He covers things like practising endurance in your life and in working through tough situations and events. He, He brings the reality of what it means to live in a broken and fallen world, but not allow that broken and fallen world to break and fall on you. He brings thoughts, a survival guide for how to thrive in life as God calls you on. And in the midst of this portion of Scripture, right in the middle, it's almost like everything else bookends this important thought. He talks about the idea that we win with our words. It says in James chapter 3, verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now, if we put mouths, uh, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. This whole section, and I'll continue to read it on, James brings the survival guide for living life in the wild. And he brings the thought that we win with our words. First thought that he brings out of this portion of Scripture is that our words actually steer our lives. Think about all the things that he could have written to this group of people about. People who have had to flee their homes, people who have had to cut and run, people who have had to bail on things that they never thought they would, people who have been persecuted because simply they are following Jesus and committed to Jesus. Think of the things that He could have written them. He could have written to them, I feel so bad for you. I'm heartbroken for you. The whole letter could have been a letter of misery. He could have had a narrative that was so down and depressed and caught at the lower level of life. But here in the midst of this letter, he brings them a challenge. Your words matter. Your words actually steer your life like a horse being led, like a boat being steered out of the storms. And he's bringing this thought that you can actually steer your life in the right direction by the words that you carry, or you could choose to steer right into the storm. There's a powerful thought that we get to convey that we get to steer our lives with our words. Words set the scene. Robert Morris, a wonderful pastor from the States in his book, The Power of Your Words, writes this, Negativity is simply the devil's language spoken by those who have his perspective. (sighs) I'm going to read that again. Negativity is simply the devil's language spoken by those who have His perspective. God's language is faith. Nothing is impossible with God. 
God never speaks negativity. He speaks truth. Even when He speaks truth, He speaks it by faith because He sees what can happen. Faith doesn't mean that you don't see the problem. Get this, faith doesn't mean that you don't see the problem. Faith means you can see past the problem to the answer. You're not saying there is no problem. Instead, you're saying there is an answer. Do you know that your words can lead you in to victory or lead you out of victory? As James is challenging the church in the wild, those words resonate with us today. That just as we get to gather together and worship and engage and experience the presence of God, we then have the opportunity to live out the message with our lives. So much of what James talks about in his letter is the idea that we're not simply called to know, we're called to live. Allow what we believe to influence the way that we act, the way that we engage and the way that we live out our lives. He even goes to the point of saying that you can only prove your faith through your lifestyle. And in that, He challenges us even today, the church in the wild, to be people who choose to use our words to steer us to where God is directing us instead of away from where He would take us. Words steer. You know, I have the honour of learning how to be a parent on the fly. (laughs) I had an Instagram message from a lady in the congregation today Janet, who shared a meme of a pastor using all the illustrations from their kids. And I'm so sorry that they have to live through these stories, but I'm so grateful that they're out in kids' church right now. Yeah, so the story's not about Liam. But last night I had the honour of cooking what I think was a beautiful dinner for my family. It it really was. I, I enjoy cooking. I got, I got my acorn uh, smoker raging. I got some pork ribs and I basted those in barbecue sauce and slow cooked that thing till it was beautiful and tender and served it out to my family and enjoyed a wonderful meal with them. And my daughter, Zoe, who's six years old, who I'm convinced is going to grow up to be a chef and own her own restaurant, who just loves and appreciates food, immediately once she finished eating, turned to me and asked the question that she asked, every night after we have dinner together, no matter how good, bad or indifferent it was, she says to me without failing, Daddy, what's for dessert? (laughs) Now I have to confess something to you. We are not a family that regularly has dessert. We, We are not. We maybe have dessert maybe two times in a month. We're just not wired that way. If you have dessert, more power to you. Go for it. Sticky date pudding with custard is possibly the greatest dessert ever created. But we just simply don't engage as a family. But yet my daughter, all of six years old, will ask without fail, grilled cheese on toast, what are we having for dessert? Slow cooked pork, what are we having for dessert? Hamburgers, where the meat has been squashed out and, and seasoned and, and cooked to perfection. What are we having for dessert? And without fail, when I give her the response, nothing. Her happy countenance descends and breaks and her little face fractures before my eyes. 
Yeah, oh, all right. It's hard to say no to Zoe. And then she begins to adjust her words. Think about it. We've just had a beautiful meal. We should be talking about how lovely it is to share a meal as a family. And she adjusts her words to language of complaint and despair. Daddy, you don't understand how hungry I am. Daddy, you don't understand how much room I have in my tummy. Daddy, if I don't have dessert, you don't want to send me to bed hungry, do you? I'm not making this up. This is almost a daily occurrence for me. She does pretty eyes and everything. She does everything she can to engage me to a lower level of life. It's hilarious and upsetting at the same time because the interesting thing that happens is that as she starts speaking those complaints out, she was happy. She was giving a polite answer by myself. But the moment she starts speaking the complaints out, her entire character shifts. Why is that? Because our words steer us. Living a life of complaint steers us to a life where we are never, ever, ever content, where nothing is good enough. And look, I don't mean to pick on my six-year-old. She's going to grow up and learn it as she goes. But I realise that I do the same thing about much bigger things than dessert. That when things don't go my way, too easy it's for me to speak out in declaration that things never will. Too easy it is for me to speak out that why does it work out for them and not me? And I begin to form words of complaint that steer me away from what God actually has available. Again, it doesn't mean that we can't confront problems, that we can't be real and honest. But the moment we allow our honesty to move to a heart of lack and discouragement and despair, We've allowed our words to steer us away from what God would actually call us to do. Wouldn't it be amazing to allow complaint to lead us to be people of prayer who engage God at a higher level to say that, Lord, how do you want to answer me through this lack? Many of us are going to be praying for dessert as we move forward. (laughs) Philippians 2, 14, 16 just quickly says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. So you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Words steer. James doesn't stop there as he unpacks this survival guide of what it means to live as the church in the wild of what it means to live out a life that actually proves the reality of God with the reality of the way that we show up. He says in James chapter 3, verse 5 to 6, So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. It's placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Whoa, James is dropping bombs. What he's trying to convey here is that words when they're untamed, words when they steer us away from the things of God, are words that catch, 
They catch hold of things. They catch hold of the rubble in our lives. They catch hold of the fuel. They catch hold of the dried out things. They catch hold of the things that we tolerate in ourselves that haven't been refreshed by the Spirit of God. Things that we've allowed to go old and dead, like a branch that has fallen in a forest that we pick up to burn. And see, James is writing to a group of people who knew and understood how dangerous it was to work regularly with fire. See, unlike our current culture, many people of that day and still many people still today cannot cook inside because it's too dangerous. Think of that, it's too dangerous to cook inside. That even today there are parts of the world who represent even the times that James is writing in where they could not cook inside because simply it was too dangerous because as you're cooking with coals and fire, and a gush of wind comes in, all of a sudden your entire place could be burnt down. That is common to have kitchens a short walk away from your house because you have to protect what you have. James here talking about the fact that we win with our words brings in this idea that your words are just as dangerous as a flame that is caught up by the wind and shared with fuel ready to burn. You know, we live in a culture where words have never been cheaper. I remember when living through the transition point where mobile phones were not a thing and they became a thing. I remember owning a brick of a mobile phone that had numbers on it and underneath the numbers it had letters. And on each of these numbers was something like four or five letters. And I remember when SMS was a thing, when SMS was cutting technology, when never before had you been able to send a written message to somebody. I remember sitting down with my old Nokia and pressing a button three, four, five times to get the right letter and then waiting for that little cursor to stop blinking so that I could press the next letter and it would take five minutes to say something that took five seconds. I remember being so excited to do this, that this was real and great and look at technology, isn't it wonderful? Makes our world simpler and easier to connect. And every one of those SMSs, as I would send them, as I was courting Rhiannon as my future girlfriend, fiancé slash wife, those beautifully drawn out text messages that took 10 minutes would cost me 25 cents a pop. In half an hour, I'd blow a dollar. Sending texts that were timeless that she's never forgotten, that she keeps deep in her heart because they cost money. Unlike today where we've got Messenger and WhatsApp and iMessage and the things don't cost anything. You can share whatever you want without cost and you even have a keyboard to use as you write things so you don't have to shorten every word. Are you okay? Can be actually the words, are you okay? I remember living through that and seeing that it actually meant something to send a text. Now we've ended up in this culture where it costs nothing and that's brought out some of the worst in us because there's no cost. 
The words have almost lost their value, but they still are valuable because of the effect that they can have. That isn't it interesting that as we see words become less valuable, they're weaponized more. They're utilized more to attack and hinder and harm. That we even use things like social media, which don't cost us anything except for our entire identity and advertising. That they've become a weapon, a weapon built on words that can hinder and harm. I'm shocked as I've gotten more involved in youth ministry over the last season about how social media and texting are the primary tool to intimidate and bully and hinder and harm even our youth. Why? It's because the words aren't valuable. And so they'll shoot things that they don't really mean or maybe they mean but haven't thought through. James captures this idea for the church in the wild. And he says to us, even today, don't be like that. You have to see that your words are valuable, that your words are gifted. Your words can build and not destroy. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, the writer says, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Your words are meant to catch. Your words are meant to spread, but not for destruction, not to dismantle, not to burn up, but to give and to pour out life and to empower. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you know that your words can heal? And I don't know about you, but some of the most impactful memories of my childhood are completely based around the words that people said to me. And often they were the worst possible words that I somehow took into my heart and allowed that to shape the person that I was becoming. And that often the journey in the Kingdom of God and growth and maturity means that God Himself by His Spirit will reveal what those words are in our lives and challenge us to come to Him and receive healing that we do not have to live by the words that have been spoken over us because they're constantly burning like the fires of hell. And you think about why would James use that term that words are burning like the fire of hell? Well, hell simply means living in complete separation from the things of God. Hell is like being thirsty, but not being able to drink. Hell is being hungry, but not being able to eat. Hell is complete separation from the goodness of God, but being aware of it the whole time. That's what hell literally is. The Bible says it is a place where the worm, where the spirit never dies. And there's a constant sense of lack. That is hell. And he says, our words can be used like that as a weapon to cause people to live in lack, but instead choose to be people who use our words with wisdom to bring healing and to build up. We get to steer with our words. We get to catch even the right things with our words. And a final thought, as James continues to go on, speaking to us, the church in the wild, says in 3, chapter 5, verse 6. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Verse 10, blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Ultimately, words build. With our words, we get to build what God is calling us to live in and through. And it's interesting that James talking to a people who keenly understood what it meant to live a life of blessing or cursing relates our words to that. See, blessing means words of benefit, means words that build, means words of empowerment. It's the type of words that unlock the potential that God has inside each and every one of us. And cursing, cursing are the words that dismantle and destroy and strip people of the potential that God has placed inside them. And with our words, we are called to build. We're called to be people who choose to say and live and act in a way where we allow the best to come out because as the best comes out, people are built up into who they are called to be. I'm mindful, just bragging on Kane Hayes at the back who's preparing for the CrossFit Championship soon. And I was talking with Kane a couple of weeks ago about the team that's going over with him to the States as he competes and how his coach is going over. And Kane said to me that his coach is perfect because he knows what to say and when to say it. That in the midst of the competition, he has somebody who's on his side, who speaks into him and allows him to tap into the potential that he has as an athlete. And the greatest coaches do that in any sport. It's not simply that they know the rules of the game. It's not simply that they can teach people how to kick a ball or shoot a hoop or how to do this or do that. The greatest coaches are those that come alongside their players and know what to say and how to say it that taps into the potential. What they're tapping into there is what James calls words of blessing. Words that empower, words that build up, words that release the potential that God has. And as a church, we're called to speak and minister and give. Words of blessing into any situation and circumstance we find ourselves in. You know, I'm mindful that the Apostle Paul in writing to a church that had lost its way in Corinth, wrote in 1 Corinthians about how we are called to have gifts of the Holy Spirit that occupy and work through our lives. That we're actually called to live life empowered by the Spirit of God and recognise that we're not doing this on our own. There's nine gifts that are listed that are available for everybody who follows Jesus. Gifts of healings. You know, it's possible for you to pray for the sick and the sick recover. Gifts of miracles to see the supernatural breakthrough in our lives. Gifts of faith where we are confronted with things that would allow others to pull back and retreat, but we press in and see the breakthrough happen. That those things are available And it's interesting now, three of the gifts that are mentioned by the Apostle Paul all have to do with words. He talks about this thing called the word of knowledge. The word of knowledge is that sometimes God may allow you by His Spirit to see into the heart of somebody or something and know what they're really going through so that you can share that in a way where people know that God knows them. That you can use your words to know how to help people and how to be there and how to press in and not pull back. 
talks about a thing called the Word of Wisdom. Wisdom simply means to know what to do and how to do it. That there's a Word that comes from God that we can even share with others where people are hit with the problems of life and have paused and stopped and their words are beginning to steer them away from the purposes of God that we can even interject a new Word. That there is a way through. That God is calling you up and out. That it's a gift from God to give. Words of knowledge, words of wisdom, even prophetic words. And I don't know what you think of when you hear that word prophetic, but the idea of the prophetic is that you tap into the potential that God has made available for every single person. And you call that down into the now, that it would be the heart of God for this to happen. And that you're standing with that person to see that fulfilled in their lives. That we are called to be people who bring words, words that make a difference. Because we win with our words. The ultimate word, ever spoken, comes out of John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, and I'll finish with this Scripture. The Apostle John setting the scene of what Jesus has come to accomplish, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John there is talking about Jesus Himself. It's no accident that God would identify His Son as the Word. Because ultimately, as we're living out the story of our lives, as we live out this blank canvas that God is writing on, the ultimate Word is Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And if we are truly called to win with our words, the greatest possible Word to live with and win with is Jesus. It's no accident that God Himself carried and embodied that name, that it wasn't Bruce and Brian or Bob. Although there's nothing wrong with those names. That it was Jesus. Because the word Jesus means God's salvation. Here's the deal. As James is writing, who can tame the tongue? Jesus can. Who can empower the church in the wild? Jesus can. Who can lead you through whatever trial and temptation and pressure that you're facing? Who can show up in and through you so that you can show up in and through every stage and season of your life? The ultimate Word to be spoken into every situation is Jesus. Because Jesus is God with us. Not God apart from us, not God above us, not God outside of us, but God with us. And it is the heart of God for Him to live in us and through us by His Spirit because Jesus is the Word. And if we are called to win with our words, then let us be people who grab hold of the reality of what Jesus has called us into and through. That we are called to be a church that takes ground. A church that advances because each and every one of us individually, as we come together corporately, is advancing in our own lives. A church does not advance because of a Sunday service. It advances because the people who are part of the church advance with Christ throughout their week. 
who gather and scatter again, who go into the wild and carry with them this mindset that I'm not just called to survive, I'm called to thrive. And that even in situations where I would allow normally my words to take me away, to steer me off direction, I can show up and present the one word that matters most, Jesus. What is Jesus calling you to? And who is He calling you to become? Because He is with you every step of the way. Church, we are called to win with our words. Thanks for listening to this message. We hope it has blessed you. If you would like to find out more about Awaken City Church, visit awakencity.com.au.